When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. It is a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm here with my very good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, thanks. I've got my water here. Yeah, our water in our, in our nice cooling off late October, almost soon to be Halloween time. Mark, it is adventure time. It's time for desecrating South American burial sites. I have many games. It's, I, I know I was going through my list and it's just, it's the game we're going to be talking about this week. It's a it's a couple of the games that I played this week. It just seems to be the theme of the week. Yes, well, I'll have some comments about the theming of Lost Ruins of Arnak later. They're playing a little fast and loose. It's not quite to the point of being objectionable. They're, 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 they're trying to do a wink and a nod. So like we said, we're going to talk about some board games, some burial desecration, some games we played this week, news and why it doesn't matter, and then our game of the week which is Arnak, the Lost Ruins of. Arnak, comma, Lost Ruins of? Yes. That's how you're going to alphabetize it? Exactly. Okay. So, Mark, what did you play this week? Played another couple games of Quantum. Having introduced this to Dewey and Louie, they took to it very, very much, and they were very, very keen to go back again. So, sure enough, we went back to Board Game Arena. And a couple of notes about the way Board Game Arena organized things that I just find funny. And again, this is one of the reasons, one of the influences of having a system with an ELO ranking element. They say right at the beginning, they don't use these words, but that there's this this notice right at the top of the screen. Remember, second place is the first loser, so be sure to gang up on the leader. For what it's worth, they're right with respect to Quantum. It, I've commented on this last week. There's no balancing element other than aggression on the leader. And so, yes, if someone's about to win, you have to go and kill their ships. And that's fine. It's just a weird way to introduce the game. And it, it harkens back to our discussion about the framing of a game and the subliminal brainwash going on. And I can't help but feel that when the platform itself is telling you that second place is the first loser, that that is just, it, it's a strange cast. And every time it loads up, I feel the need to comment on it and undercut it. But Quantum is great fun, finding out the combos, playing with toys. It's a game where you get to play with toys. Every turn, even though everyone has access to the same ship abilities, it does feel like you get to do something cool. And given that you're, it's a very, very fast-moving game where you're constantly doing cool stuff, it's hard not to enjoy it, even if, strictly speaking, the balance elements might be a little all over the place. And I don't mean by that that some special powers are overpowered or underpowered just that if someone gets an early lead they can run away with things there's also just again to talk about some of the ways that quantum can fall apart there are a lot of opening setups where somebody can get a quantum cube on their first turn if somebody has the right setup of dice if they rolled the right dice if they started the right com uh, 
corner of the map, they can get an incredible early advantage. It's not to the point where I'd want to house rule it. I've done this before. I've house ruled things where, you know, there's an overpowered first turn where people can't do anything about it. Even my favorite worker placement game, Tribune, I've got a house rule uh, concerning that. And I've, I've just been very glad that it hasn't materialized in our games of quantum recently but it's 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 been bothering me in the back of my mind so i might might try to think of ways to get around it i don't know if there's an easy or quick fix but despite all this lots of fun with quantum fast engaging fun just really really fun enjoyable game i normally don't like to rely on that kind of anti-critic it's just really fun but in quantum's case it really is warranted yeah i don't have it on my list but i have i have been keeping up with it as well i've been playing games this week of it just love it Puzzly, extra fun to play, especially on Board Game Arena. Still waiting for the check. Mark, 50% of the population is going to die. We're single. So you got to you gotta hedge. Wait, which 50% is not going to die? You got to hedge your bets, Mark. Who are these people who are not going to die? You got to send out some love letters to the people you know are going to be left. So like you may be the person that's causing all the death. You send them out a little letter, just a reminder of who you are and, and your availability. You know, just, just so, you know, you... It's just subliminal in the back of his mind of who you are. And so when the time comes, you know, the, the, the meeting won't be so awkward. Dear Thanos, please swipe right. Yes. Infinity Gauntlet, a love letter game. We played a couple times this week. And, and it's a great little, you know, uh, take on love letter. It is. Love Letter has a number of strange elements to it, one of them being that you have a one-card hand, which is a strange thing to say, and another thing is that it has player elimination. And the Infinity Gauntlet version of Love Letter is by far the biggest departure as compared to the other Love Letter games. Like, for example, there's Love Letter Batman, which is Love Letter, but with Batman graphics. Zero rules changes. There are a whole bunch of versions with zero rules changes. But Infinity Gauntlet version is a 1v all game which normally we're not super jazzed about but it's so quick that it's hard to object too much the victory conditions seem to be at least within striking distance of being balanced with each other and there are two different ways to win for both sides there's no player elimination anymore and there's a team-based element so this whole notion of being able to suss out information you can play a card to give your teammates some degree of information, hoping that they can then queue that up on their turn if you're playing as the heroes. Despite the fact that I have very little enthusiasm for Core Love Letter, other than as a literal time killer between games, I can't take it seriously even as a filler game because of how weird it is. And despite my negative enthusiasm for anything related to the Marvel Universe... Because I'm really over it, Walker. I was over it five years ago, and so now I'm really over it. Yeah, you're completely done. But I I find it really enjoyable. What can I say? It's it's an interesting twist on a formula that didn't quite work for me, but this version I really enjoy. Yeah, I I enjoy it because of the time length. It's very short. Like, there's not a huge decision space. You're pretty well top-decking. You do have two cards, and even out of those two cards, there's not much. There's a little bit, you know, when you say, okay, you're going to get you're going to be able to give bonuses out to your teammates. So you got to sort of suss out. It's like, well, he's going to go next and then he doesn't have any. So you sort of, you know, know where to put them off and, and you know, he's going to get attacked soon or, 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 oh no, he knows what number you have. So you better get things. So there is a little bit of, you know, double think there, which is nice, but, and the time it takes to play is so short that it makes it fun. I'm interested to try playing as Thanos. That is in both games. I didn't play as Thanos and Thanos actually has, wait for it. A two-card hand. I know. know. Being able to pick from three cards to play, 
How could a single human make such decisions for themselves? I just hope it doesn't bog the game down. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The analysis paralysis in a love letter game. That would definitely be the way to play it. So that's Infinity Gauntlet, a love letter game. It's published by Zeman Games, and the designers are... Seiju Kanai and Alexander Ortloff. So let me tell you the story of Battlecon Unleashed Walker. I believe I've mentioned this before to you. Yes, bring, bring, tell me the tale. Marcus. It's a tale of sadness and triumph. Battlecon, in many ways, is the story of my experiences with Kickstarter. Battlecon War for Indians, the first version, is the first Kickstarter project I ever backed back in 2010. And Battlecon Unleashed is kind of sort of a cap to the fourth edition of the game. After many revisions and many different approaches to distribution and many different approaches to packaging the characters, this is sort of the omnibus version of more than 100 characters, at least if you have uh, the promos and you've been backing things as I have. About a couple years ago, I started sending Kickstarter pledges to my mailing box in the United States because in the long-running segment of our show, Screw You Canada, we've observed that Canadian pledges tend to arrive some number of weeks after, more or less 2d6 weeks after an American pledge might be expected to show up when you're lucky. So, this is the last pledge that got shipped to my American box that I can't get to because we're in plague times and I can't cross the border anymore. I told this tale of woe to Level 99 Games, and so they sent me a review copy of Battlecon Unleashed. So, technically, this is a review copy, despite the fact that I gave them lots of money for Battlecon Unleashed in the first place. So it's kind of both, and it's kind of neither. But, got to play a couple of rounds of Battlecon Unleashed. I played a lot of Battlecon, and I was very keen to play it in its newest iteration, the latest round of smoothing, the latest round of subtle graphic changes, which caused them to have to reprint literally hundreds of cards to bring all the former fighters up to date. You've seen the the, the incredibly huge boxes that now organize everything in one place. I'm a sucker for incredibly huge boxes that organize everything in one place. Shortly after showing Walker the Unleashed boxes, I then showed him the too many bones trove chest. Oh, wow. So suffice to say over the past couple of weeks, I've been spending many hours sorting and organizing things, which is its own kind of joy. Oh yeah. There's a game involved. Yes. Oh, well. oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I played a couple rounds of Battlecon. I tried characters that I just hadn't played yet at all. I wanted to save the characters that I was used to that had undergone major revisions because I'm, I'm slowly learning my lesson. My habit in the past, when playing games like Battlecon, when playing games like Sakura Arms, more on that later, my impulse has been, I'm going to play the characters that I love the most, which tend to be, number one, slightly more complicated, and number two, tend to be premised on denying the opponent the ability to do anything. So, my favorite character in Battlecon is Caitlin Van Sorrell, whose job basically is to make sure that the opponent never has range to her, which is real fun for me. Usually not so much fun for the person I'm introducing the game to the first time. Despite this, uh, despite the fact that I wasn't playing against a new player, I was playing against Dr. Stallone, who's a big fan of the Battlecon series. I tried new characters, new simple characters to ease my way back in, because it's been a while. Great time. Loved it. I, I played as a dragon who's retired from being a dragon and is now an academic. He's the head of sorcery at the Magical University. Of course. I'm sure he had some reason for going and doing something with trains, because that's how level 99 rolls. Anyway, and it was great. I really enjoy the system. Battlecon is definitely my favorite version of the level 99 games fighting games. I, I, I much prefer it over Exceed or even a very different thing, Pixel Tactics. 
And it was nice to go back to the system in its finalized form. Now, we played remotely. It has a very, very good official tabletop simulator app. It's one of the better tabletop simulator applications I've seen. And honestly, it's a very well-done mod, and it's already up to date with all the newest stuff. There are some typos in the new set. But honestly, it's hard to complain too much because we're only talking about a couple that are actual gameplay effect typos. And it's usually something that, like, missing a plus. And so it's it's pretty easy to suss out. There's, there's a list being maintained. So it's unfortunate, but I think forgivable in this context. And because I played relatively simple characters, and in the first game at least, Dr. Stallone played a relatively simple character, we were able to focus on some of the slightly more core elements of Battlecon, namely the double think. Is my opponent going to drive this turn, or is my opponent going to do a shot? Well, that it matters, therefore, what I do in response. The sort of incredibly elaborated rock, paper, scissorness, rather than say, I'm going to drop down seven portals and now try to navigate this, and your range is now zero, ha ha ha, you suck. Which, I still like playing, and so having done this, I'm probably going to spend some more time easing back into some of the more complicated characters, like Gaspar, like Caitlin Van Sorrell, my favorite ones, and making people very frustrated, because that's how I like to play. I'm a huge fan of Battlecon over the years, I've been playing it for 10 years, and this latest edition really shows a tremendous dedication to the system, and the amount of stuff that they put out in an effort to make it feature complete is truly impressive. I'll no doubt have more to say about this going forward, and indeed I'll probably be doing a, a full comparison of all the card battlers in Level 99 Staple once the Kickstarter for Sacred Arms goes up, which will be tomorrow. But that was my reintroduction to the wonderful world of Battlecon. Speaking of Sacred Arms, Mark, you and I played Sacred Arms. We did! And speaking of, you know, manipulating range and beating your opponent to death when you're trying to introduce them to the game. Hey, again, hey, hey. That was, that was pretty enjoyable watching my, my poor fighter get pummeled into the ground while not being able to do anything. And you were the one who took the Poisoner, right? My favorite combination in Sacker Arms is the Poisoner and the Ice Mage. And those two women just poison you and freeze you. You took the Poisoner. You were the one who was handicapping me with complicated rule systems. Well, All that I did was just rush into your face, and you just kept trying to back up. Speaking of complicated additional rules, Sacro Arms now have the all these characters have these like sideboards. And I think the best way to alienate a new player from this game is to have a whole bunch of extra stuff on your side while they have nothing. No, no, I'm not. I'm not saying this. This has nothing to do with the game. The game you and I played. Ah, okay. Good. I'm just saying. Say you introduced another player to the game, brand new. And you have all this stuff on your side and they have nothing. I, I think this that would be something that would, you know, take them out of the Look, I was, I was very conscious of taking a couple of characters that I hadn't played before, but that, but that I knew in execution were very simple. Thalia and Ryra, for what it's worth, for those of you that are familiar with the game. Fundamentally, though, the, the issue was that you didn't pay attention to the ranges at which my characters were effective, which is an entirely understandable mistake. I'm not criticizing you. But that's one of the things with Sakura Arms. No matter how simple the characters are, it's not really a question of complexity. It's just if you can't manage the range bands properly, it can get very, uh, very difficult. And unlike a lot of other games, including, for example, Battlecon, if you're at long range and you only specialize in short range, the long range character tends to win. If anything, Sacker Arms, it's more frustrating to be close up and having to back up, because backing up in Sacker Arms, especially as you're taking damage, is real hard. I agree with all those things. All I'm saying is that when introducing new people, <laughs> when they don't understand what's going on, I think they'd get you know pulled out of the experience. And that was 
our game of Sacro Arms, which I still think is amazing. And like you said, the Kickstarter starts tomorrow, so I'm super excited about that. Played another game of Race for the Galaxy. Race for the Galaxy remains my favorite tableau builder. A marvelously quick experience once you know the rather intimidating iconography, and once again played with my favorite configuration, which is to say the first three expansions all the way to the brink of war, with prestige, without takeovers, and yes, with the incredibly controversial prestige and the incredibly controversial goals. I like both prestige and goals. I'm sorry, it's the way we like to play. Played a couple games back-to-back, saw a very strong early produce consume cycle got completely busted by a rebel heavy strategy getting massive rebel military worlds i thought i was very clever getting a produce consume strategy getting eight points around not fast enough (laughs) not enough points got completely smoked by a very very fast expansion strategy nice to see different kinds of strategies going off against each other and, and being done successfully I will always play Race for the Galaxy. I've played it now well over 100 times. It is a little bit of a shame that the pace of the new expansion releases has slowed considerably, not because the game needs more expansions, but because I know Tom Lehman has another several full cycles of expansions available, and I really think the game could do with a little bit more exposure because Tableau Builders are very, very much where the market was about a year year or two ago, and Race for the Galaxy was just better than anything else that uh, was on offer. And I really think that it should get more exposure. I mean, it's it it was very heavily in play back when the expansions were in regular rotation. The Brink of War was released in 2010, and since then there's been a significant drop-off, I think, in terms of the exposure of Race for the Galaxy, but that is unfortunate. There's also the very, very good implementation on Board Game Arena, so I will help your, your side hustle of, of shilling for Board Game Arena. There you go. Speaking of Board Game Arena, Carcassonne Hunters and Gatherers. This is an older version of, of Carcassonne, but it just came out on Board Game Arena. They sort of double down on the end scoring bit of in Carcassonne. They have these farms and they score big at the end. So not only do they have the farms, which are these vast fields filled with all the different kinds of prehistoric animals and you're going to score based on what's out there, but there's also these, you know, waterways that you're going to put your huts on and they're going to score at the end as well. So other than that, it pretty well plays the same. Definitely my most unfavorite version of Carcassonne so far. Really? That's fascinating because I remember when I was first getting into the hobby, there was there was a solid consensus that Hunters and Gatherers was the best version of Carcassonne, even when compared to some of the other historical variants that were released and some of the other ones later, even the Reiner Knizia version and a whole bunch of it. Like, everyone speaks very, very highly of Hunters and Gatherers, and I comment because I've tried three or four different Carcassonne versions, but I've never played Hunters and Gatherers. What about it did you not like? I, I don't think it changed it up enough. It was like sort of like, yeah, this is just the same sort of, you know, it didn't didn't seem that much different to me. But the Meeple's Wave. But the Meeple's Wave. I want to try the Star Wars Carcassonne. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Is there a Marvel Carcassonne? Not that I've seen. Okay. That's not to say that there isn't. <laughs> not to say that there couldn't be one shortly. This is true. Are there other versions of Carcassonne on Borgie Marina that you played? No, I think they only have the original in this one. It's a shame you didn't like it. Speaking of another really old game on Board Game Arena, Alhambra. What do you think of Alhambra, Mark? Alhambra's fine. I, I know I played it a long time ago. I it's the it's the implementation of the wall system, you know, walling everything off. It just seemed anticlimactic and just fiddly and and uninteresting. I like the bit with currency. The different currencies are kind of sort of cute. The trade-off of trying to save currency to get the exact match so you can go again, which 
makes no sense at all in, in the context of even the pasted on theme of the game. It's like, ooh, I paid you exactly. That means that I'm so efficient. I get to go again. It's like, uh, no. Usually you throw money at a problem to, to, to get more done. But I don't remember a whole lot about the way tile scoring works. So maybe that's what you're, 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 you're addressing. I, I found that the actual tile laying not super engaging, especially since as I've commented several times, it's, the kind of tiling that I prefer less, which is to say you've got your own set of tiles in front of you. You're not actually building something collaboratively with the other players. What about the walls did you not like? No, I just sort of, just like you said, it just wasn't, it was uninventive and not very interesting. You just sort of like walled in your city and it's like, I could put it here, put it there. It didn't seem oh, overly yeah. engaging. The, the choice of where to put your tiles after yeah. you buy them. It's a relatively simple accessible game. I, I prefer a Palazzo. Palazzo is kind of sort of Reiner Knizia's equivalent. It's It's shockingly similar. Reiner Knizia claims not to play other people's games, and I believe him because he just releases so many designs, but nonetheless, he sometimes releases games that are incredibly similar to other designers' games on occasion. And Palazzo, which was one of the small Alia games, felt very, very much like Reiner Knizia doing Alhambra, and I, I slightly preferred Palazzo to Alhambra. I finally played Pavlov's House. This is a review copy that was sent to us by DDG. Pavlov's House was designed by David Thompson. David Thompson is now in that position where when I play one of his games, uh, he's such a good designer that it almost makes me angry. Actually, talking about Reiner Knizia, I'm not saying that he's similar to or even on the level of a Reiner Knizia, but sometimes I get that impression when playing a Reiner Knizia game. It's like, how did he do this thing? Why is this game so good? How can he put out so many good releases? And that's kind of sort of the the weird anger that I feel when playing David Thompson games. Like, how did he do this thing? Now, Pavlov's House is very, very similar to a game I've spoken about earlier on the podcast, Castle Itter. Castle Itter is kind of sort of a redevelopment of a lot of the same, same ideas, simplified and streamlined. One of the consequences of the simplification and streamlining was that in Castle Itter, you spend more time allocating enemy positions... And that's one of the biggest knocks I had against Castle Itter. It was simple, it was nice, it was fun, it was very enjoyable, and it used the great line-of-sight system from Tannhauser and a number of other places. And it was a, a joy to do a sort of tower defense thing in a historical context. But you spent so much time determining where enemy soldiers showed up. Pull a card, roll a couple dice, decide if you're going to roll some more dice, roll some dice there, place the tile, maybe things move. Well, in Pavlov's house, two things happened to significantly undercut this. Number one... The enemy activations place new troops far less frequently. Enemy activations do a whole host of things, including bombing your supply lines, placing armor, which works differently and has fewer die rolls to allocate. And as a result, you spend a lot more time focusing on your actual actions. There's a strategic element on top of it. You have the people in the eponymous Pavlov's house. There was this famous apartment building, actually, in the middle of Stalingrad, where some Soviet soldiers held off German troops for a very, very long time. It, it, it's, it's been propagandized many, many times by the Soviets. And there's that. There's the tactical element of the tower defense business of where's the machine gun crew going to go? Are they going to be able to shoot down the riflemen and the scouts that are coming? Can you get the anti-tank gun to go shoot down, uh, shoot the stug that is advancing on Pavlov's house? But on top of that, you have the strategic element of can I get the ammunition to Pavlov's house in the first place? Can I get sappers there? Can I manage the communication lines? Etc. 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 So you've got these three levels. You've got inside the house, the tactical situation surrounding the house and the strategic level all around the Volga River and the various detachments and organizational elements there. 
It's really cool, and all three of them fit together seamlessly with a minimum of rules problems. I was intimidated away from trying Pavlov's house earlier for two reasons. Number one, I'd already played Castle Itter, and number two, I was concerned because the cards don't have much information on them. The cards, for example, that activate your strategic assets just list a strategic asset, like the 1083rd Artillery Division. And that's it. That's all that it says. It's like, okay, could you not have put any information on the cards? Give me a little bit of a quality of life improvement there. I had similar complaints, actually, from uh, other DVG David Thompson releases, like For What Remains. There's Wasted Real Estate, where there could be unit reference abilities. On the back of various cards, there's nothing when you could have put some helpful text or reminders or various things. And so I, I was worried that playing Pavlov's House would require an endless series of lookups and cross-references. And when I'm playing solo, I'm not particularly interested in doing that. And sure enough, the first few rounds were very much that. Cross-referencing the card to a player aid to the full rulebook because the player aid wasn't exhaustive. But that lasted only about 20 to 30 minutes. And the rest of it was smooth as silk. You pull cards, you do some very simple strategic actions. You then activate the enemies, which is even simpler to execute than back in Castle Itter, because I say it requires a few steps. And then you do the soldier's actions inside the house. It was a blast. It was probably my favorite solo experience so far this year. It was really, really well done, and it was super impressive. This is the second edition of Pavlov's House by, by DVG. And there are tons of optional modules about beefing up the enemy attacks, about more strategic objectives, about giving up supplies for the sake of the broader war effort, and that'll give you more victory points. There are multiplayer variants, which I might not necessarily be super into, but there's a version where the where your opponent can control the AI, and they have some decision points along that line. It is a very, very impressive package, and I really recommend it. And I'm so glad, I'm so glad, Walker, that I played Castle Inter first and then played Pavlov's House. That is definitely the trajectory that I'm that I'm pleased with, because honestly, now looking back on Castle Itter, it's like half a meal in comparison. It's a very interesting design, and I'm glad I played it, but I'm very much glad that I played it before Pavlov's House. This was really, really compelling, a solid design that, that has one of the things that I like most in clever game design, interlocking systems that work seamlessly, where all these elements come together in a very, very playable package. And I've gotten this far without you making the stupid, obvious joke. So go ahead and deploy no, the stupid, obvious joke. I wasn't obvious. I wasn't, I'm not going to do no such thing. Um, I was going to ask you, is it a little bit like the Queen's Gambit, where there's like three different theaters going on, and you got to sort of decide where to emphasize your 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 forces type thing or your cards or well it's a little bit in that there are different scales going on and the different scales have impacts on what is going to transpire at various levels it is unlike queen's gambit in that you take specific actions to do specific things like for example during the beginning part of a round you are dealing with the strategic assets you cannot forego strategic assets in an interest towards privileging your tactical situation, except in the sense that you are spending some of your actions to funnel supplies over your guys, or you could use actions to beef up your air defenses. But the only reason why you would beef up air defenses in the first place is to later on be able to funnel more things to your tactical situation. So it doesn't have that kind of pull of focus, but if anything, that makes it, let uh, that lets the different theaters, uh, as it were, they're not really different theaters, shine on their own terms. Honestly, the demands and the trade-offs were very, very satisfying because you have to do everything. And 
your soldiers are there desperately. It's effectively like you can imagine these situations saying, like, okay, so, uh, you gonna give us that ammo you asked for or maybe some food? Oh, I don't know. Uh, would it kill you to give us some first aid? And you get central command being said, oh, yeah, 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 sooner or later. So, um, how's that assault group working? It's like, well, we'd love to consider assaulting that building you want us to take, but how about you give us some of the ammo we asked for three turns ago? I'm very much looking forward to playing Pavlov's House again. It has received the highest honor of a war game. Namely, it has its own counter tray permanently devoted to it. So I will, so I can have everything neat and sorted. That was Pavlov's House by David Thompson and DVG. So Mark, it seems as though you had a much better experience this week than I did. They say that board game diplomacy makes you lose friends. I'm telling you, if anyone ever brings Luxor to my home for a gaming night, not only will they be banned forever, I probably will slap them directly in the face. <laughs> so Luxor is designed by Rudiger Dorn, published by Queen Games, and it's the first in my looting of the Aztecian temple games. And literally, it's like a tau- a, like Talisman is a very dated game. This is just like basic Talisman. <laughs> like you go around in a circle and you're like, you don't even get to roll the dice. You don't even get to interact with anything. You're just landing on spaces and, and trying to get to the middle more efficiently than the other players. It's it's quite painful to play. Have you ever played Luxor? I've not played Luxor. So in Luxor, there is this deck of cards. You have a hand of five that is out in front of you because you have to keep it in the proper order. You can only play the cards from the left and the right. And then when you play one of those cards, your new card comes back now into the middle. So now you still, you know, can only manipulate your cards and they go from anywhere from one to five and you can land on spaces that will get you special cards that will make you move slightly differently. But other than that, it's just you moving a bunch of adventurers around in this spiral to the center. And I found it painful and, <laughs> and, and, and never want to play again. It's a shame. I like Rudiger Dorn a great deal. I haven't played Luxor primarily because it's one of his more recent lighter offerings. It was only published a couple of years ago, and he just seems to be in a very family mode kind of vein, very much like the the kind of design space that Renner Knizia was in for, for some period up until a few years ago where he started designing gamer games again. And I really like Goa. I really like Traders of Genoa, but Istanbul doesn't do a whole lot. I mean, I'm fine with Istanbul. I'll play it. And Luxor, from your description, sounds like very much in that sort of inc- much lighter, much more accessible mold. And I like lots of light, accessible games, but uh, Rudiger Dorn I prefer when he has a little bit more heft to them. So my second game in my Aztecian Conquest is a new game called Quitzel. This is a game, Mark, where you get to roll meeples. So you take your handful of meeples and you roll them out onto the table and they have a light side and a dark side. So if they, whatever side they land on, those are the meeples you get to use this turn. And if they land on their side, then you get to choose. And if they land standing the proper way up, not only do you get to choose, but you also get extra money. So what you're doing in this game is you're trying to get these set collections and you're placing these meeples out on the board to collect these cards. And then you also have to activate spaces in order to cash in these in, in order to cash in the sets. So you can even block people from cashing in their sets and you can, you know, you need money and it's a very interesting system. It gives you that key flower feeling because some of the spaces are like, uh, are bidding spaces and the first person in will decide whether they're going to be black or, or white. And then everyone else has to bid higher in that color and you get to see what everyone has. So you can say, Oh, he's got two white. So I'll just bid two white and that'll, you know, take him out of the, the bidding. And I found it a very interesting game. I'm wondering if it uh, is a little too light, but I'm, I'm interested to see when it actually comes out. 
it'll be fun to play. So, so this is digital only at the moment. Digital only. It's on Board Game Arena. Oh, you don't even get to roll them physically? I know. <laughs> it's, it's definitely going to be, you know, a, a textile thing. I'm, I'm interested to see how that actually plays out, rolling meeples onto the table. Because that's one of my many disappointments of playing Quantum Online, in addition to having to play it through a digital version. You don't get to roll the dice, these big, chunky, beautiful, nice colored dice. But I, I have another question for you about this game, though, Walker. And that is, is there a thematic explanation for why you are rolling meeples? Maybe they're all ex-acrobats turned <laughs> explorer. This is the maybe, unexpected sequel to Meeple Circus. Maybe you know how they have circus trains? Maybe this was like a circus boat that sort of crashed onto the island and they... Okay, no, I got nothing. Makes about as much sense as magical academics running train companies, I guess. Acrobats could then go into tomb raiding. I, I'm not sure. I found it quite interesting and I was... in it. And it'll come up in the next game. It's just sort of like just had this board game feel to it. Like the board. <laughs> the, no, I don't know how to explain it. It's I hate like, those board games that feel like a sponge. So often I play this board game. This doesn't seem like just, a board game. This seems like a wombat. Why does this I feel mean, like, a like a wombat? Like a nostalgia feel. Like you right. know, you, you, very colorful board. And, you know, it's family time to play a board game. I don't, I don't know what it is about this Aztec, Aztecian adventure thing that, you know, gives me this feeling, but... You, you know, Walker, you can keep saying Aztecian. That's not going to make it a word. It is a word. <laughs> yeah, okay. Stop saying Aztecian, Mike. It's not a word. All right, and this is a game designed by Alexandre Garcia, and it's put out by Gigamic Games. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So, Descent. Descent, Descent. Yes. Okay, Fantasy Flight said that they weren't going to do a Descent 3rd Edition, and they were telling the truth, because instead they're going to be doing something called Descent Legends of the Dark, which is kind of sort of like Descent 3rd. It's different in that, number one, the art style is very different. I actually quite like the art style. It, it, it struck me as, again, just a couple steps removed from the very traditional, boring kind of fantasy art that I associate with, I don't know, Fantasy Flight games, particularly those that take place in... What's the universe called again? Terranoth. Terranoth. Yeah, 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 yeah. The the, the incredibly compelling original universe of Terranoth. <laughs> so oh. dull that I couldn't even remember what it was called. But this is different from previous descents in that both Descent First and Second Edition were originally designed as one v all games in the dungeon crawler mode, and Descent Second morphed into a more co op thing, an app driven idea. Descent Legends of the Dark is going to be entirely app driven. And I was thinking, oh, maybe this might be a kind of thing I might take a look at to see if Fantasy Fl This is one of those rare times when Fantasy Flight does something. Because, look, I figure we have to reward... You're getting drawn in, Mark. No, no, here's the thing. I think as much as I criticized Fantasy Flight of 5 to 10 years ago, at least 5 to 10 years ago, they would release products that were not Lord of the Rings, Cthulhu, or Star Wars. And so I was thinking maybe we should try to encourage their, you know, publishing... Uh, then I saw there was going to be 175 American dollars. Yeah, well, there's and my head exploded. There's multi levels, Mark. You see, there's giant staircases that these monsters. Have you seen the figures? There's like these giant super. It's the standard descent stuff. And they come down the stairs, so they're at a higher level. I don't they, care if there's Mark, a stair. They have high ground. High ground, Mark. <laughs> I said we weren't going to talk about Star Wars. <laughs> this went from maybe I might be kind of sort of to no, no, just no. No, it's just yet another fantasy campaigny yep. adventure game. Yep. I'm, I'm done. Yep. I'm done. Yeah, yeah, so am I. Speaking of adventure to get into adventures, Mark, I, I read the Dragonlance novels. I think they were like my first novels as a child to get me into Dungeons and Dragons. 
And these were written by Margaret Reese and Tracy Hickman. So now they have a $30 million, $30 million lawsuit against Wizards of the Coast. Oh, wow. Yeah, because uh, they had a deal with Wizards of the Coast that they were going to bring out a, a new trilogy of books. And for no apparent reason, Wizards of the Coast just said, no, we're not going to do that now. But they already had sort of a tentative agreement. And I huh. guess they didn't like that. So now they have a lawsuit. So that's kind of interesting. Is there a gaming hook here? There's tons of of Dragonlance games out there. And Wizards of the Coast Actually, is, my, a, is a gaming deucer. So I, I, that is a game. My first hobbyist board game, actually, was the Dragonlance board game. It was this weird sort of pseudo almost a war game where every character had five dragons that they could use movement points toward allocation, and they had altitude that was represented by stackable chips under them. And you go fly around and 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 fight things. It was it was incredibly unbalanced, but kind of cool. It was so imbalanced that even as a child of like ten, eleven, or twelve, I'm like these don't seem balanced. <laughs> but then again, of course, I was a child. Maybe I was completely wrong then. Maybe it's perfectly balanced. Maybe it was a fine example of design. But I did I did do some math crunching. I remember one of the factions was. In combat, you could roll two dice and take the better one. And another faction was another faction was in defense. You have a plus two, and another faction was in offense. You have a plus two. And I'm thinking, given that roll two, pick one off a d10 is probably going to net you an advantage of around two. It can be worth on both offense and defense. Isn't that better? And I I, I spent some time check, checking the numbers, and sure enough, nerd. I mean, go ahead. What's your next one? <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. Your your introduction to literature was the Dragonlance novels. You're clearly the jock here. I didn't say my introduction to literature, my introduction to gaming. <laughs> so Grail Games, who published Yellow and Yangtze, have announced that they're going to be having a whole bunch of new Reiner Kinesia products over the course of the next little while. There's going to be an expansion to Yellow and Yangtze called the Royal Palace. I'm very cautiously optimistic because... I don't even really like the add-on modules for Tigers and Euphrates, best game ever made. So I'm not entirely confident that they're going to be able to graft on more stuff uh, to a game that's very similar. And my objections to the Tigers and Euphrates expansions were indeed that they felt like grafted on and not very organic. There's also going to be Yellow and Yangtze card game because Reiner Knizia will always do X the card game and X the dice game after having done a game called X. And he's also going to be releasing at least a at least tenuously redeveloped version of Medici, one of his famous auction games called Medici Reformation. And despite my previous comments, I am endlessly willing to watch Reiner Knizia riff on some of his famous designs. I quite like the Amun Ray card game, for example. I'm a big fan of the Raw Dice game. Sometimes I'm even more a fan of his redevelopments than, than the original, as is in the case in Amun Ray. And so I'm very curious to see what he's, what he's going to be doing with uh, the incredibly successful and popular Medici auction game, which is almost a quarter century old now. And that is what's going to be coming out from Grail Games. I'm looking forward to all of those things. Speaking of things coming out, my last piece of news is just the plethora or the the glut of Kickstarter stuff that's out right now that I find interesting. We have Yido, that is a deluxe reprint. Freedom 5 is out. Frostpunk, Darkest Dungeon, The Grand Austria Hotel, Let's Waltz, that whole deluxe Kickstarter is going right now. Crash Octopus, Kabuto Sumo. These are, both of these are fantastic dexterity games. I can't wait to play both of them. I can't wait for Crash Octopus and Kabuto Sumo. And Sakura Arms starts tomorrow. Do you think there's going to be any way 
we could use either the Crash Octopus components in Kabuto Sumo or the other way around. Like have a combination? Yes. Together? Yes. Yes, I do. I hope that this will prove to be a fertile ground. I look forward to this sort of unwilling collaboration. And that is all of the news and why it doesn't matter. One final note, though. Uh, tomorrow is Arkhipov Day, October 27th, in commemoration of the day that Vasily Arkhipov saved the entire world. Happy Arkhipov Day. Happy Arkhipov Day, Walker. Now, on to our feature game of the week, which is Lost Ruins of Arnak. Lost Ruins of Arnak was published by Czech Games Edition. It is designed by Michal Stach and Michaela Stachova under the aliases of Elwin and Min. Uh, Min being the alias of Michal and Elwin being the alias of Michaela Stachova. And these are their first published designs. Apparently they've been longtime employees of Czech Games Edition, but this is their first published board game. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary of what one does in the Lost Ruins of Arnok? Well, in Lost Ruins of Arnok, you're sort of going on this, like what I said, nostalgia trip between Jenny Journey to the Center of the Earth and Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom. You're just this adventurer going out, destroying these crazy, weird <laughs> beasts and and, and well, I thought you were about to say destroying cultural artifacts. Well, that too, probably, <laughs> as you're tromping through and you're and you're collecting, you know, all these cool artifacts, and you're and you're just trying to get the most out of each turn, and you're trying to get these very interesting combos, you know, to happen, and eking out every last point. I've... I agree with you that the theme feels very classic. It's it's the, basically the Lost Cities theme in terms of board games, and there's something very evocative about it. I will say this: the diverse cast. Both the people portrayed on the box, even though white guy gets top billing, whatever, uh, there's a whole bunch of assistants, and they clearly come from a variety of different backgrounds. And as a result, what it does for me anyway, and I'm not going to tell anyone else how to feel about this scene, it kind of takes the edge off. It doesn't really feel like a whole bunch of European British dudes in pith helmets going to Mesoamerica and taking all their cultural artifacts back to the active crime scene that is the British Museum. You can at least imagine that the precious gems and tablets that they're carting uh, carting out of all these ruins are at least being uh, repatriated back to the original cultural inheritors of the local peoples. Uh, So, you know, (laughs) given that it's uh, a fantasy environment, they don't say where it's happening and they don't say who's doing what. It's all very sort of generic in feel. It it doesn't feel like super colonialist. (laughs) So what it is, though, is a, a worker placement deck building game. And so what you're doing is that you're doing all these different actions. They either include your worker or they don't, or they do playing cards. You're buying new cards. You're putting them in your deck. You're trying to go up these different ladders. No, what's the the word? Tracks. Tracks. That's it. Tracks. Tracks on tracks. Well, no, it's not. See, that's the thing. Very much like Alma Mater, which, by the way, is just a parade of white dudes and ladies. Uh, there's only one track. When there's only one track, I'm cool with it. When it's a very, very salient portion of the game and it's super consequential and there's only one track, I'm fine. It's when there's a lot of different tracks and it's kind of diffuse and the rewards they dish out just feel arbitrary and disconnected, then that's when I get tuned out. Ah, that's what I felt this was. That's the one part I didn't like really? about this game was the, was the research track. So you have, I, I liked how it worked. You had mm-hmm. your exploring where, you know, you had to go out and find the thing and then you had your research book, which, you know, you wrote down what you found. So it's you, a game about publishing. So, so you couldn't have your book higher than your magnifying glass. 
The hey. game world has clued into the idea that academia is super cool and super hot. So you can play Argent the Consortium about academics jockeying for a promotion. You can play Alma Mater about running a university with academics jockeying for promotion. And now you can play Lost Ruins of Arnok, which is about these people who want to publish their findings. I suppose. <laughs> but just, just I'm exaggerating. It's not yes. that exciting. It's just the fact that it just spit out all these random bennies and it's like that, you know, it's like. Oh, have an assistant now and have your assistant gets upgraded okay, for well, some reason. It's just, it just seemed disconnected from the going out and finding the cool ruins and, and interacting with the guardians and, and getting the cool stuff. That's, that's fair. Thematically, it doesn't really connect why the resources you're spending to go up the track don't really seem all that connected to, to anything else that's going on. And... Uh, but honestly, for me, it was mostly about points and the other bennies were incidental with the exception of the assistance, because here, here's the, the, the thing that's important to keep in mind with respect to Lost Runes of Arnok. It is kind of sort of a worker placement thing with deck building and every round of which there are five, you have two workers and that is it. And the amount of time you spend placing workers and deciding what you're going to do with them is dwarfed by the necessity of getting a really, really efficient, valuable deck that can really compensate for the parsimony of workers and getting these assistants, which are basically free resources every round because they refresh. And so getting your first re assistant is super important. And I will grant you in that sense, you really do have to care about the track. Now, to your credit, when you were explaining the game, you did point out, get your first assistant as soon as you can. It's very, very important. Past that, all the bennies from the re the research track, I completely ignored. They just came in and it's like, oh, okay, well, this is handy. Once they completely ignored, it's part of that cool puzzle of the game where we talked about earlier where you explore a site and you get the cool bennies there. Like you open up a new action space for workers to go. And then after you do that, you're going to put a guardian there. And if you're left, if you don't you know, appease the guardian before the end of the turn, then you're going to get some negative card into your deck. So it's sort of like a puzzle. So we, like we said, you want to do that first. So then now it's the rest of your turn is like a sort of a puzzle to get the resources you need to appease the guardian. And sometimes the research track is part of that. It's like, okay, if I go up this and go up that, then I can get that one compass that I need. So it's a, I, that's the one part I really liked about the game is that it's this crazy puzzle that you have to figure out on how to get, eke out that one resource that you need in order to appease the guardian or get the most out of your turn. Can we talk about the guardian for a second? Because I wanted it to feel a little bit more thematic than it, than it was. You know, there are these beautifully evocative pictures of fantastical monsters. I actually commented on a couple of them that they would have looked right at home in some of the cards for Hyperborea, which for me is high praise. Because just as a reminder, the way we play Hyperborea is there's the person who gets the most points. They're kind of sort of the winner. But the real winner is the one who has the best menagerie on their technology right. cards because they're these really weird animals just in the background doing stuff. And the guardians in Arnok are these big, colorful, really weird-looking things. And if you show up and you take resources and you don't appease the Guardian, and it, I'm, I'm not even really sure whether you're defeating them or appeasing them sometimes or bribing them in some instances, you get a fear card, which I, which is weird because are you supposed to be afraid after the fact, after you've done it? You just remember being so close to the giant face-eating monster, and now you're just... No, you, just you, you understand that he's disappointed that you didn't, didn't appease him, so now you're scared that it. you... It. 
Well, that's just it. I I refer to them exclusively as guilt cards. They're not fear cards. They're guilt cards because there you are carting off the stone tablet. And again, I'm being charitable. I'm assuming that the stone tablet is going to a local university or a local uh, museum. You're carting off the, the, the valuable gem of whatever the Arnok. The mythology isn't fleshed out, which is fine. And the giant tiger with mandibles coming out the side of its face with bright orange fur doesn't go and attack you. It just sits there and it says, really? Really? You're going to take my tablets too? Really? That's what's going to happen? Okay. I see how it is. So it's, it's a guilt card. It's not a, it's not a fear card. It's a guilt card. And the fact that there are so many, there's a, like a deck of at least 15 different guardians. These are all things that pull you into the theme of this game. Uh, there's this huge deck of, of artifacts and, and another, uh, you know, 20 or so deck of items. Every single one is different. Every single one is interesting in some ways. It's either hot air balloons or airplanes or a, or a turtle that you ride around that carries your stuff with you. Or, you know, it's all these like really interesting adventure things that pull you into this game. It's mostly graphical for me. I mean, it's, it's pretty skin deep. The items kind of sort of do what you might expect them to do. But at the end of the day, it's all fundamentally absurd, right? You're leveraging the funding you're getting for your expedition to buy an axe on site because that's how expeditions work. And then you use the axe to chop up your fear or absolve your guilt uh, and then get a money, which what are we supposed to assume that that's from? Like none of it makes much sense. And for example, you go and you appease or you defeat the giant frog. And then later on, you can use that giant frog instead of a boat. Is the frog your friend and is just transporting you somewhere? Or are you riding the dead frog like some sort of raft? No, I, no he helps you after you appeased him, Mark. I don't know. <laughs> you you seem to think that the theme makes a whole lot of sense. It's fine. I, 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 I don't really find it offensive. I'm just pointing out because it's visually compelling. And I amuse myself trying to explain how it might work. But... Even the tablets that you use to play the game and the, and the gems and the arrowheads, like I said, all the stuff feeds into it being nice and thematic. Well, going back to the puzzly elements that you were talking about, this is one of those classic Euro games that ramps up considerably, right? It's got five rounds. At the end of the, uh, the, the first round, you've placed your two workers. You've played a couple of very, very weak cards. You look at this very long research track, which, in all honesty, you probably haven't even taken the first step on. Or if you have, you've only taken one step. And you figure, it is impossible for anyone to get to the end of this track over the course of five rounds. And by the end of the fifth round, you're... Uh, Placing a worker, which lets you then draw a card, and now you trade X for Y, which activates Z, and then you go up the track, which gets you another Benny, which then lets you pay for the next thing, and then Walker's five minutes into his turn, and you're waiting for your chance to play. It's great, right? Well, it's both good and bad, right? It, it's it's very procedural in the sense you're you're spending a fair amount of time pushing resources around just to either race up a track or buy one more card or activate one more point, or that kind of thing. But it's nonetheless quick and engaging feeling. Like, the entire game doesn't overstay its welcome, and it's not an endless cycle of resource conversion. And the sense of ramping up is very satisfying, because you start off with a very, very narrow set of choices, and the board opens up, and your options open up. And all that part is 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 very enjoyable. I think the game is is fine. It's yeah. quite fine. It's that's why I have here. It's only five turns. It goes very quickly, and it leaves you with that feeling. It's like, I just wish I had one more turn. You know, that one thing that I wish I could just, you know, if I only had, you know, this one more resource, then everything would have worked out great. I don't feel, I never feel like I want one more turn. I think the game is just about the right length. 
I don't. I definitely don't want the game to escalate yet further. I don't want a sixth round of. of no, no, not that I would actually want it, but you always feel as though if you know, if I had only one more turn, I could have got to the end of that track, or it could have. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You you feel the resource tightness. You do need the precise combination of resources that you need, and if if there there is a certain amount of flexibility, like there are these tablets you can get which are worth points, and you can also then use them and give up some number of points to immediately get some sort of resource. So there's some flexibility if you want to pay for it. Ultimately, though, my primary complaint, though, is I wish that the deck building and the worker placement interacted better. I wish there were more points of contact, because I think there's something really clever there. Harkening back to Underwater Cities, not that I necessarily want it to be more like Undercover Biddies, but the bit there where there was the card play interacting with the worker placement, and that leading to some trade-offs and some interesting combinations, I would have liked more of that in the context of Arnok. In Lost Runes of Arnok, sometimes you have a card that deals with your workers. For example, activate a location where there's no worker. Well, and that's not super interesting because you just play that first. Or activate a location where you already have a worker. Eh, well, okay, well, but you already went there. But there were some things that say, move a worker with some degree of discount. Ah, now we're getting somewhere. I wish there were more times where I felt that these cards interacted with the worker placement in a substantive way. As I, as I was ta- commenting before in the context of Pavlov's house, I like it when these things mesh together rather than, well, you have these workers that you can place and you also have these cards. Well, I did have a little bit of that trade-off in our last game where I cut my deck down so so much that in order to put the workers out, they have to travel there. So if you want to go to a boat place, you have to play a boat card. And yes. A lot of times you have these like really cheap starting cards that let you do that, but I had gotten rid of most of them out of my deck, so I had to I I did have to decide on which one of these cards I was going to sacrifice in order to, you know, put my workers out. So that's a little bit of it of how they mesh together as well. You're entirely right. That part where in almost all instances you have to pay one or more cards to do let your workers do anything, that part was really cool. But it didn't interact with the deck building much. No. Uh, most of the time, as you say, you'll just look at your weakest card and say, okay, I'm just going to burn that because I wasn't doing anything with it. So it didn't really lead to interesting trade-offs. It didn't really in- inform my deck-building decisions. Maybe I was playing suboptimally. Maybe at expert-level play in Arnok, you're always thinking about, well, I'm going to need to activate this, that, or the other. But the just the parsimony of the worker placement, it just felt a little ancillary. It felt a little tacked on. You only ever have two workers. And so most of most of the actions and most of the, the impetus you get actually is through all this other stuff that comes in the system. I do want to talk about the deck building a little bit because it does do a lot of interesting things that other deck builders don't. Uh, it interacts with the turn marker. It has this moon staff that slides across the top of the board and that tells you how many artifacts you're going to have and how many items you're going to have. So it sort of shifts during the game. And I think it also shifts on uh, when... Uh, those things are important or not at the same time. You know, items become less important near the end of the game and artifacts are more useful because you get like an immediate effect out of them. Because when you buy items in normal deck builders, they'll probably go in your discard pile. This one, they go underneath your draw pile. So you're going to definitely more than likely get them in your next turn. And the artifacts, uh, when you buy them, you get an immediate you get to use them right away. You play them right away. You play them right away. And not only that, you get them at a discount because later on when you play them, you have to pay, pay a tablet in order to, you know, to use them. So they're like doubly useful later on in the game. So, cause that's when you, you know, need those instant resources. 
yeah, I enjoyed the way the different cards worked. And some of the cards are fun. I mean, I'm complaining about how the cards don't really influence the worker placement or vice versa as much as I would have liked. But some of the cards are really neat. Some of the artifacts effects are, are, are kind of cool. I was a little disappointed when you initially explained how that market system worked with respect to the moon staff. I was hopeful that it was the kind of thing where it would fluctuate back and forth, that there would be some player influence about what kind of cards were available. But no, it's just... As the game goes on, you have more artifacts available and fewer items, which is fine. Uh, but honestly, near the end of the game, mostly what I found myself doing, and I didn't find this super engaging, was I would just look at my leftover resources and I would just be buying cards for points. Which is fine, it's functional, but it's not as cool as the middle parts of the game where I really felt that the game was uh, firing on all cylinders for me. Because you had a little bit of influence over your deck but it's not fine-tuned within an inch of its life. Some of the board has opened up, but there's still lots of new territory to go out and explore. Going up the research track is a bit of a challenge because you might not have diversified your... Uh, your resources sufficiently to be able to go up as much as you like. By the end of the game, I really felt like I could get more or less whatever I wanted done within a certain subset of things. It was just a question in the classic Euro game optimization thing. Well, if I go here, I get five points. If I go here, I go four. Okay, I'll go get the five rather than the four. And in the beginning of the game, everything is so constrained, you're not really doing much. So it's it's a relatively fast game, so this is not a serious criticism. I just wish that it felt a little bit more like the mid-game, because that's when I felt that the game was firing on all cylinders. Agreed. On, on, the, on the subject of fast, I like the fact that after every round, there was no downtime. It was just like sort of reset the cards and go again. Yeah, that part was great. And also the fact that you all your cards were always useful. There was never a round where you had cards in your hand. It's like, oh, I didn't get to use them this turn or this card is useless this turn. There are always uses for the cards for some reason, either for travel or for some other reason, even though they're all completely different. There's none of them that are useless. Right, because although you're seriously limited in your availability of workers, you're not limited in the number of actions you may take. And so a card is either a fast action that will just give you some trivial benefit and therefore is boring, which, whatever, or is a substantive action in its own right, and you will necessarily be able to do it at some point. It's just a question of when and what tempo you might want to give up. Yeah, and we've talked about games that are handcuffy in the past, and this one is just the opposite of that. I just love all these fast actions. It's like, you know, if you need something, this is how you get it now, and you don't have to say, okay, well, I couldn't do this, or I have to wait till next turn. It's like, okay, no, I want this now. You play the cards. I love the difference between the fast actions and the normal actions. That's another negative I have about it. I think because we play a lot of games or people that play a lot of games will have no problem with this, but people new to sort of board games might have a problem with knowing what were actions and what were what were what are fast actions and what the difference are between the two and the fact that some actions, you know, you do with your worker and some that you don't. For us, it was easy to, you know, suss that out. But I think someone who's new to the hobby might have a problem, you know, understanding how this all comes together. It's funny you mention that because I, I was having the thought that if this game were a little bit simpler, say 15 to 20% simpler in terms of the trade-offs you have to make and the number of resources to manipulate and things like that, I think that Lost Runes of Arnott could be a really solid intro game. It'd be a really, really solid gateway game for somebody who's maybe played a couple of simpler things or who can handle the complexity of something like Catan because, I, look, it's it's a fun, enjoyable game. It's not what I would call particularly interesting in any of its any of its effects, but it's bright, it's colorful, it's 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 engaging enough, and the duration is good. And as you say, there's not a whole lot of upkeep and, and overall management to be done from round to round, which is an excellent way to keep the pace moving. 
I don't think that th- I think that this is just a little a hair too complicated as an, as an intro game. And honestly, as as far as more gamers games are concerned, I fear what might hold the Lost Ruins of Arnak back. Aside from the fact that I felt that the different mechanisms didn't mesh particularly well, is that and this is one of my major criticisms, other than the, other than the the, the latter one, is uh, I felt every play was more or less the same. I felt that, especially since the arc of every game was the same, your first actions, you're desperate to do anything. In the middle, you're finally getting somewhere, but by the end, you're, you know, you can get more or less wherever you want to go. And yeah, all the cards are different, and there's a whole bunch of different unique cards, but at the end of the day, there's a, there's a finite number of resources for you to get, and the card effects don't really upend things to any considerable degree. So... It's one of those things, to me, this is one of those textbook examples of a game that's perfectly pleasant and I wouldn't object or walk away from the table if someone put it in front of my face, but I would never suggest it. And honestly, I'm hard pressed to imagine who would think, yes, this is something I want to go back to over and over and over again. It's true. I, I think there might be different ways to play it. I think the research track is definitely probably the only way to go, but I did try, you know, a, a Guardian. Well, to play competitively. Yeah, I, I know I tried a, a heavy Guardian strategy a couple times, and it didn't seem to, you know, work out. But I'm wondering if there's different ways that you can get more victory points other than just the research track. Well, but it's not really... Uh, the, 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 the score space of Arnok is not wide enough that super specialization makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, yes, sometimes in a game you're going to kill four guardians, maybe five, and sorry, appease or satiate or bribe or whatever. Uh, or sometimes you might only do two. But in the games that we've seen of of, of the, whether the player won or lost, usually it was somewhere in that range. You're like you're gonna you're probably going to do like two to four ish guardians. It's not really the kind of game like more wide open games like something like in, in a, the, the vein of uh, an Uva Rosenberg like Feast for Odin where it's like I went and did a whole bunch of whaling it's like I didn't even touch whaling you're going to do a little bit of everything it's true All right, let me blast through a bunch of points just so I cover everything that I wrote down here assistance you've already covered covered really cool all of them yet again all different 12 different assistants all different uh it's a game where all the victory points get added up at the end. So there's not a victory point track. You just sort of have to look around and sort of suss out what everybody has. There's a whole idol system where you're, when you uh, explore a region, you get these idols and they also let you, you know, manipulate, uh, get you more resources, but at the loss of victory points, uh, the symbology I thought was very well done. Even you made a comment about how nice the rule book is nice and big. I think it plays well at many, uh, player counts. I think they, and it's nice and easy to implement. You just block off some spaces, and I think that works out just fine. And I want to make sure that we say that this was a demo copy that we're being given, a review copy by CEG. Yeah, so to sum up my feelings, it's engaging. I've enjoyed it. I would play it again, but I wouldn't request it. There's no player interaction. There's not a whole lot to differentiate it from a lot of other in- engaging perfectly pleasant games if they had really leaned into this notion of the worker placement dovetailing with the the deck construction i think they were they might have been seriously onto something and if there were more variety from play to play if i felt like i really had room to explore either figuratively or literally in this context but at the end of the day you might explore this one temple that gives you a tablet and a spear versus this other temple that gives you two pieces of gold and a tablet it's like okay sure exactly that's exactly what we talked about earlier as well every game pretty well played with 
same where you sort of build your deck up quickly at the at the beginning and then every turn you're exploring a region and then the rest of your turn you're trying to uh figure out how to appease that guardian and then just to build up from there and try to get the research track and that's pretty well the flow of every game and that is the lost ruins of arnak well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Baby, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. And if you like this episode, tell a friend. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. A brief interlude brought to you by... Mike's Furnace. <laughs> Heat when you need it. Noise when you don't. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online master's of social work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.